Welcome to the Marketing Millennials, the No BS Marketing Podcast. I'm Daniel Murray, and join me for unfiltered conversations with the brains behind marketing's coolest companies. The one request I tell our guests, stories or it didn't happen. Get ready to turn the f*** up. Find your competitive advantage. Find other big players, other visible players in your space who can't do what you can do, who can't produce the content you can produce, but might want to leverage it, might want to work with you on that. Show them that value. And then, you know, it's all about convincing them that it's worth partnering, right? It's worth partnering with you because they can lend you legitimacy. They can lend you eyeballs and you can create real value for them. In our case, in producing content that they weren't the best at producing that or didn't have the time and resources to do. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Marketing Millennials Podcast. Today, I'm here with David. What's up, David? Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Daniel. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here today. I wanted to get go into your background. How did you get into marketing? How did you start learning marketing? I'm interested to hear your story. Yeah. So I actually started, uh, my first career was as a journalist. So I was a business journalist. I wrote for places like Fortune uh, and Forbes. This is way, way back when. I won't tape myself too much. And then I kind of made a transition from that to being uh, a freelance content consultant. So helping different brands, companies, some Fortune 500, some startups build content systems. And through that, I got a lot of exposure to SEO. I started working with marketing professionals because I was kind of the the piece of the puzzle where it's, okay, here's the content. And then it would be handed off to the marketing teams to kind of market, grow, get traffic on, get eyeballs on. And I started working with them and realized we had complementary skill sets. I wanted to learn about what they were doing. They wanted to learn about what I was doing. So I spent years as a freelance editor, writer, building content teams, freelance project manager for content teams. And through that, was lucky enough to connect with some really, really great folks in marketing, especially SEO. And that kind of led me to go full throttle into that realm because I realized back then, I mean, this is close to 10 years ago, there weren't a lot of people who had the content background and the marketing background and kind of speak the same languages across the two and be a bridge across the two. So uh, that was really where I built part of my career was kind of being that communicator and that facilitator across those two different types of teams. Now it's a little more integrated. I still think that people get confused with the idea that every marketer understands how to write content. There are marketers are great at content. Those marketers are great at data. Those marketers are great at paid social. It doesn't mean you're a marketer. You can go write a, a great worded blog post and be successful. Something that is still missing a little bit when it comes to content these days, especially branded content, is storytelling. And I think that if you can't take, whether you're an influencer or a content creator trying to get a loyal audience, or whether you're a brand trying to sell a product, you got to take people on some sort of narrative. You got to give them a why to actually stand out these days. And I think that's an important lesson for marketers and content creators alike, and everyone who's kind of living in between those two worlds. I mean, storytelling, it's been around forever. I think that we got lost in it a little bit in the age of being able to target people very specifically and get to the audiences you wanted to very fast. You can kind of get away with losing that art. And now with all the iOS 14.5 and AI and everything that's coming on the marketing realm, storytelling is becoming 
even a more and more important skill to understand the principles and why it works. Yeah, I think Facebook got was too good at what they were doing for a while when it came to targeted marketing. Obviously, that golden age has since passed when it comes to actually being able to target people. Uh, and I say Facebook is just an example, but obviously there are a lot of different platforms that ways to target people. But yeah, it's interesting to see how those storytelling principles are maybe more important than they were even five years ago, which is, which is I know, terrifying for a lot of people in marketing. Uh, but for uh, someone who, who really cut their teeth in content like me, I actually kind of like it because it helps stuff I work on stand out a little bit. I want to go into the topic we have, and so you're really great at scaling niche media companies. Could you explain what it means to be a niche media company first and then the principles that you've used to start scaling what you've done in the past? When I first got involved in, in niche media and when Barbend, uh, the company I, I co-founded, first got off the ground in 2016, I had a very different definition of what niche content was. And it's gotten simpler and simpler over the years. And now I see niche content as content that is not produced for everyone. And by that, I mean, when we produce content at Barbend, we produce a lot of content. We are not producing content that we know every single person in the world is going to enjoy consuming or get value out of. And we think a lot of them are, but it's not meant for everyone. And that's okay. And we go in understanding that. So we are not the New York Times. We are not producing content that we think is all the news that's fit to print. We are targeting a specific interest group or interest groups. And we certainly understand with every piece of content we produce, if you take 10 people off the street, some of them aren't going to care about it. And that's totally okay. And I think once you realize that, you can call yourself a niche content creator. And then it can get progressively more subsection from there. <laughs> it's so crazy how many niches out there that are underserved, um, one. And then two, people get confused at the difference between scale and raving fans. I think if there's 10,000, let's say, horseback riders that love a sword and a horse in, in, I'm just saying a random thing, and you capture 8,000 of them on your list and you're selling to that and you're creating content around that, you're doing a great job. There's, there's all perspective when it comes to niche audience. Like marketers, for example, there's millions and millions of marketers. To get even more niche, you can go demand gen to get it even more niche. You can be like, I'm only talking to managers of demand gen and then like all managers in the USA. But it's like, like people get confused about that scale. And I think if you're passionate about something and love something, there's always a place for you to write good content for an underserved audience out there. I couldn't agree more. And I think for us, what we had to, where we really got lucky, and I think we kind of happened upon this, we didn't necessarily plan this, was realizing that when starting a niche content company, whether you're a solo creator, whether you're a brand, whether you're a media company like we are, starting narrower and then getting progressively broader is a good way to scale. So as you find success in a subsection or a sub-niche, you can get progressively broader and that's one way to scale. For example, at Barbend, we started writing content just for the like most elite strength athletes and the people most interested in elite strength athletics, like the CrossFit Games, weightlifting at the Olympics, the powerlifting world championships, world's strongest man, world's strongest woman. 
the content we produced for the first you know year, year and a half was really just for people who were really into those specific sports. As we got bigger and as we got accumulated more resources to create more content, we started writing content that was for people who like strength training, but maybe weren't as hardcore into it. In that, we got less specific. We broadened the niche that we were targeting. Uh, and that's one way that we scaled. So I, I think that when people talk about scaling niches or niche content, you gave the horseback riding example. Say there are only 10,000 people, addressable people in your audience, right? You may capture most of that market. You're like, how do I scale from that? Well, then you find corollary or even tangential audiences that are somewhat connected to that. And you can leverage your expertise in one niche to go broader. And that's one way you scale, right? You're not conjuring new readers out of thin air, but you're getting broader in your content and you're kind of bringing these new sub-niches into the fold. I'm really into, let's say, tennis now. Like, There's content specifically that you can make for elite tennis players. And then you can broaden and say, I want to make content for tennis players that are intermediate and beginner. And then you could say, like, I can make content for people who are interested in watching and reading about tennis. And that's, you could start broadening it. But it's always good to start with that, that micro audience so you know, like, hey, I'm writing content that actually might core audience understands and would like to read. And then you know you have like some sort of great content. And then when you expand, you know that your base loved the type of content you were writing. I think that's a great way of putting it. You know, I've never thought of it quite like that. Maybe you start with a micro niche and then you work your way up to just being niche. You get broader until you're in just a general niche. I think that's a great way of putting it. I think that's a really good example. I mean, it's especially relevant because we are in sports right? Barbend covers strength sports. Now, these days, we also cover strength training, nutrition, fitness, recovery, everything kind of under the sun for that. But we started just covering strength competition. So yeah, we started in a micro niche. We got brought up from there. I think the tennis example is a really great one. Many more people are interested in watching tennis and, and watch the grand slams than actually play competitive tennis, right? Like I don't play tennis, but I love watching Wimbledon, right? I'll definitely watch that this summer. Right? Or I'll watch the US Open. I live in New York. It's great. So I think your example is better than anyone I've actually been able to come up with. So I might I might borrow yeah. that. I mean, it's also it's also like you got to think about your end goal, your content. For example, like if I'm my end goal is to create the best like tennis training program in the world, you don't want to have a broad audience of people who don't play tennis. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. So if you're starting with that, then you start doing that. But if your goal is to like, okay, the way I'm going to monetize is get the demographic that loves tennis, that's more probably in the realm of getting tennis programs to advertise or stuff like that. So it's always with the end goal of like, are you trying to monetize at the end? What is your end goal of like, how are you going to do this? Who are you trying to serve? Like who you actually care about serving? And then you can start broadening from there. For sure. I want to go into how you grew it. Like you, like most people at the beginning, didn't have a budget to scale this and still don't use paid advertising to do it. So what are some techniques? If I'm starting a niche brand today, how would you recommend I start scaling it organically? This is a really slow way of doing it, but don't be afraid to leverage social media. It's much easier to grow a following on social quickly 
than to grow website traffic. Now, website traffic's more valuable, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, I know lots of folks who have half a million, a million Instagram followers, and they don't make much money off of that, right? It's not really a sustainable business. Some some do, some don't. It just depends on the audience, the follower, and their, and their followers, and how engaged they are. But you know, I think being able to adapt content to social is a lot of ways to get into suggested feeds very quickly. There's a lot of virality or a lot of viral potential in that. So obviously leveraging social to create awareness for your brand is, is impactful and something that we, that we did early on less important for us now, but times change. Uh, I think that also understanding that you can reach those communities directly uh, in other ways. For example, when Barben started, we were covering elite strength athletics and competition. I was very plugged into that community. Um, I was a competitive weightlifter myself. I was a very bad competitive weightlifter. I just want to clarify. I tell people I'm much better about writing about weightlifting than I am actually weightlifting, <laughs> which is very true. Uh, but I was plugged into that community. I co-owned a gym at the time. Uh, uh, co-owned a CrossFit gym. I had done writing for the CrossFit Games website. I had done writing about some of these sports for other outlets. I knew a lot of people in these communities and a lot of it was leveraging my personal network and saying, hey, I'm part of these communities. I'm launching this new content brand. Would love it if you'd take a look and pay attention. And they did. Uh, and that was really cool. And that was a network amplifier for us. And then I think the third thing I want to point out is, you know, one thing I often cite for our early success, uh, we are, Barbed is the official media partner of USA Weightlifting, which is the official governing body of weightlifting in the United States. So that's kind of under the USOC banner. So that sport is an Olympic sport. It has one governing body in the U.S. We forged a partnership that is still going on, uh, you know, almost seven years later with USA Weightlifting when we were only, I think, eight or nine months old as a company because we were able to create really good content and they were an organization that wanted to leverage that content and wanted to work with us as content creators. So we didn't have a ton of money we didn't have a huge following. They had more traffic than us at that point, I think. But they knew we could create really quality content that would help them connect with their community and keep their community engaged. And that organizational partnership lent us legitimacy, got us a lot of eyeballs, and got a lot of people to go, oh, wait, Barbend? Like USA Weightlifting and Barbend are official partners now? Like That's kind of cool. I should pay more attention to Barbend. And then we started doing that for other sports as well and working with the sports governing body. So Find your competitive advantage. Find other big players, other visible players in your space who can't do what you can do, who can't produce the content you can produce, but might want to leverage it, might want to work with you on that. Show them that value. And then, you know, it's all about convincing them that it's worth partnering with you, right? It's worth partnering with you because they can lend you legitimacy, they can lend you eyeballs, and you can create real value for them, in our case, in producing content that they weren't the best at producing that or didn't have the time and resources to do. So, I do tell folks that there are some principles that can be applied, and I'm very happy to share everything we learned uh, along the way with Barbend. There does come a point where breaking into a niche is a bit like breaking out of prison. No one does it the same way twice, and there's no like playbook you can follow, right? You can't just like connect the dots and automatically do it. You have to get a little creative, and you're going to do some things that just flop along the way. Like we tried, we threw a lot at the wall, and only a few things stuck. But we were able to then double down on those very quickly. To be in a niche, you have to have expertise in the niche to get, gain trust. And you had that with being actually doing that, being writing for the CrossFit, being in, ingrained in the community. People trusted you in the community, so you built inherent trust. And also, people don't realize that 
when you start a niche. At the beginning, it's actually very scrappy to start growing your audience. There's no like playbook to do it. I mean, you could say get someone on social media and stuff like that, but some audience don't exist on social media. But if you can figure out the scrap way, like when I started growing on LinkedIn, the first way I, I, I didn't have a following. So the first way is I found the top influencers and out in the space or creators, whatever you want to name them. And I would go engage in their content and I would see who's following them. And then I would connect with their followers and be like, Hey, I'm in marketing too. I'm producing marketing content. I would love to see your content in my feed and I hope you like mine. And I did it the scrappy way at the beginning. Scaling now is a little differently, but at the beginning, it was a very scrappy way to start building. And I think everybody who starts, there has to be some sort of scrappy way if you do not have a resource to cash or money. 100%. I mean, I went to events in person and just started telling people about the brand. We didn't even have a lot of money to like print t-shirts. Like I'm wearing a Barbend t-shirt now. We didn't even have money to like print t-shirts. So we, we printed like socks, uh, which were cheaper. And I was going to events and handing out pairs of socks, you know, and I was just telling people about Barbend at whatever events that I could just go to, like in my spare time. And it actually worked because people started paying attention. You know, at some of those events, like gym owners and coaches would then tell their athletes about Barbend. Oh, you should check out Barbend. Or I'd like interview them for articles and then they would share it with their, you know, gym memberships or their athletes. You got to be scrappy and you have to understand that growth is a little bit unpredictable. Like it's interesting. It's a double-edged sword because digital content is very data-oriented. We can see every visitor. We can count every session. We can see how long people spend on particular pages. We can heat map everything. We have so much data. But at the same time, it's tough to predict how quickly you'll grow and what will make you grow. And for us, we got a bit lucky because we happened to start this at a time when these sports and when strength training in general was getting much more mainstream and becoming much more popular. So we got to kind of ride this wave and really leverage the fact that our addressable audience was growing regardless of us because more people were picking up barbells and dumbbells and kettlebells, right? They just were. Timing was important and I recognize that. I recognize there's a level of luck with any startup and especially with content startups because there has to be that generated interest. Yeah, that's a good good point too. I think to scale fast, like people always forget that a lot of startups were first movers in that industry that were success or they hit the timing right when organic, like when the platform was scaling or they hit the time right when interest started peaking. There's always There's always something that was there. Either it's a platform thing that they had advantage on, an interest gap that they they took at the right time, or they tried something new, a type of content that nobody's tried before, and they were successful. It's always something that people don't realize. And that's why it's, I always say, you shouldn't try reverse engineer everything that people do because what got someone there might not work for you. You should just look at the principles and the fundamentals that they're doing to try, see if it will work for your business at the point of your business that you're doing right now. I think it's an excellent point. I really love how you said that, Daniel. And one thing I would say is you can take lessons and I'm happy to share lessons. And people have reached out to me since we were acquired a few months ago and they've asked, what did you do? How did you do it? I'm happy to share all that. 
I do try and couch it, all of those lessons with this worked for us. Hopefully you can take something from this and learn something from this, but you will almost certainly have to adapt it for your own use case. What are the like top three growth levers you use when scaling Barbat? For sure. Number one would be search engine optimization. I think SEO gets a bad rap. SEO still is kind of a dirty word for a lot of folks, especially when I talk to journalists. Uh, they hear SEO and they think it's a dirty word, which is deserved. Like 20 years ago, SEO was the wild west. Even 10 years ago, it was kind of the wild west. There were a lot of gray areas. But search engine optimization these days, I feel, is about making sure your content is maximally readable and accessible. And when I say accessible too, that means things like you know making sure that your text has enough contrast so that screen readers can use it for people who are uh, people who might be visually impaired, right? Making sure that it's mobile responsive, right? Most web traffic today is mobile, right? Make sure your page can load well. Make sure it's accessible on mobile devices. Make sure your file sizes for images aren't so big that pages are taking so long to load and they're using up so much data, right? Use good basic design principles. Make sure if you have content that's long and lengthy, put a table of contents on it. Make sure people can actually use your content and get the answers to the queries they're looking for. That's thing number one. I see a lot of folks who say, oh, I don't want to focus on SEO. I just want to create good content. Well, they're kind of one of the same these days. If people aren't going to be able to get that value out of your content, if they're not going to be able to parse it, then they shouldn't be able to find it, right? Because it's not that valuable to them. Good content is very subjective. Like, sure. I always say to people, you could write whatever you want, but that could be end up being you writing a journal. Yeah. Because a journal is just writing your thoughts on a paper that you think is great. Or you can create the best content for what your audience is looking for. And what you're saying is, if someone's searching, what's the best way to, best form to do a deadlift, and you have the best article about that, you win. And you have the best content around that. Um, you win the that search query, you win that, co- you, you're not necessarily gonna win the search query, but you'll get a better chance of placing and being the spot to go next time when someone's looking for something else around that content. And that's a great example because if you Google bar bend plus deadlift, you'll find the best article on the web, on the deadlift, I truly believe that. Um, so I appreciate that example. I think number two would be expertise when it comes to content. We barbend creates strength content by people who really love strength. We have our in, amazing in-house team. We also work with hundreds of contributors from around the globe. Some of the smartest minds in strength. We're talking Olympic medal winners. We're talking PhDs, we're talking researchers, authors, we're talking about you know people who are part-time writers because they spend so much of their time in labs or training high-level athletes or doing the research or you know breaking new ground. And so we really show what we like to show our expertise and we like to show the expertise of the people we work with. Uh, and that's something that I think is really hard to fake and it's good that it's hard to fake. But you have to illustrate it and you have to tell people that, right? You have to say, hey, we had this person write this article because they're the best at this. Getting articles expert verified. Uh, these are all things that we focus also, on. Also, that's something, good, good point. And we talked about this before, this podcast, but that's something that AI can't do. Um, AI can't say, 
this is the best Olympic lifter in the world that has expertise and trust. And I'm going to share an article. That person is sharing an article about that subject. Hey, I could probably write content about lifting, but it can, it's not coming from someone with expertise and who's done it before. And so much of what we do is experiential. We take it very seriously. People come, they're reading our content because they want to live healthier lives. They want to get stronger. They want to learn about resistance training, recovery, nutrition. AI can write probably a pretty good article about you know bench press form, for example, but it, it doesn't know what it feels like to bench press. Right. And that's a really important qualitative assessment and part of our content, right? Is is making it accessible and understanding that this is experiential what we do. So I'd say that expertise is is uh, thing number two. Thing number three when it comes to scaling is consistency. And I can't emphasize that enough. Barbend, we grew very slowly. Uh we were not an overnight success. We were not a profitable company. Until our fourth year in business, we were sipping money out of off of our seed off of one seed round because we we didn't know if we'd be able to raise again. It took us that long to get to profitability, which is kind of crazy. And then we scaled quickly from there when it comes to that that type aspect of the business. But we publish seven days a week. When we're publishing news from the strength world, we're not missing a beat. As we've grown, we publish more frequently on more things, but. You know, people expect us to cover certain things and we we do our best to always deliver. So people know that we're going to cover these event results, that we're going to have the news that's relevant to their interests and to these different micro niches. We are relentless in our publishing calendar and we plan that months and months and months ahead of time so that we don't miss a beat. Not saying we're perfect, but consistency is really important. And if you take a week off of publishing, I think some creators can do that, individual creators. But if you're building a content brand that's really multifaceted, a multi-person content brand, you got to deliver the goods and you got to deliver the goods consistently. And that has SEO benefit as well. It's not just, oh, your audience might get a little disappointed because you're not producing more content. Search engines will start to see you differently. And they are going to value the publishers that are always publishing quality content over those who do it in stops and starts and with streaks. So consistency is really important. I love those three because two of them, two of them people could do today. Like two of them is like, if you're an expert at what you do and you're consistent, those are two big things to start scaling. The third is like finding that growth lever that works for you. Like SEO is the one for you. Some people it's going to be social. Some people it's going to be Facebook groups. Some people it's going to be whatever it is. It's just like the third is finding. But if you have expertise, you're passionate about the content and you can produce that consistently, you're probably better than 98% of people creating content for your niche today. What is a marketing hill you would die on? The more niche you get, the more exacting your audience gets. Like the more narrow and specific you get, the higher the standards your audience expects. So for example, when we started off, we started off very niche and we were just writing for the elite strength athlete and the elite strength fan. And if we got 
the sports of weightlifting and powerlifting mixed up. For example, if I go off, it's better than it used to be, but if, I, if I'm out on the streets of New York City and I ask 10 people, what's the difference between weightlifting and powerlifting? Most people probably won't know. Most people won't know that they're two different sports, they're two different disciplines. If we messed that up early on, we would have gotten reamed out. We would have gotten, we would absolutely heard it from our audience because they were super niche and they were super dedicated and they ate, slept, and breathed this stuff. And if we got that wrong, it would have made us look like fools and it would have made us look like we didn't care. And so the more specific you get, the higher the expectation for your audience, whether you're a publisher, whether you're a marketer, et cetera. And that's a hill I will die on. The more narrow you get, the more specific you need to get and the more careful you need to be that your I's are dotted and your T's are crossed. That's a great point. I think I think that's where like expertise comes into play. I think an expert, when you're talking to experts, you have to talk in the language that experts are talking. When you go broader, you can be more simple because people don't understand. But if you're talking mathematics to math professors, you have to be really great at mathematics and understand it and talk the language that they're speaking. But when you go broader and you try to teach mathematics to children or like parents or people learning math, then you can start being simple and using simple words and stuff like that. But a math professor would sniff you out in a second. Yeah, that's a great way. That's a great example. You give better example. I like how I give really like fumbling examples and you give very precise, specific ones in response. I was just thinking about it because I think you're making great points. Um, lastly, where could people follow you, find what you're doing and all that good stuff? Well, the best place is barbend.com. Uh, also, we we also run breakingmuscle.com and we're those are, you know, at barbend on, on social media. Personally, uh, I love connecting with people. You can find me at David Thomas Tao on Instagram at D underscore Tao, that's D underscore T-A-O on Twitter. Um, I do talk about marketing. I talk about content. I also talk a lot about whiskey. Uh, I have a kind of side separate career as a whiskey reviewer and spirits writer. So if you're interested in that, I post a lot about that on social. It's a weird mix of the two, but uh, hit me up. I'm also david at barbend.com. I do get my email out. Hit me up. Love hearing from people. Oh, well, thank you so much. This has been great and been great to hear your story and learning from your experience. Thanks so much for having me. I had a blast. Thanks so much for listening. Tune in next week to hear more great insights from marketing's coolest operators. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the Marketing Millennials podcast and giving it a five-star rating. It helps bring more marketers into our community.